Good morning. Let me ask you to get your Bibles open. You're, if you're on a device right now, then you're going to need a paper copy or another device, but get your Bible open to Luke chapter 20. And as you're doing that, let me just acknowledge to you that uh, as a church, we are very aware of what is going on. We're doing live stream church right now. It is not optimal. It is not best, but it's the best that we can do this morning. We are all looking forward to the day that we can gather together. On Friday afternoon, uh, if if you were paying attention, I was paying attention, the president announced that um, he is designating churches as essential. Now, if you needed a declaration from the president to learn that church was essential, you haven't been paying attention because we certainly know it is the most essential thing that we can be doing. And we're happy today that one of our campuses of Gospel City Church has opened there in Elkhart County. So excited about what's going on there. Can't wait to hear reports. And yet our Granger campus is not quite ready. Uh, we are so excited about the facility that God is providing. And right now it is a, an absolute construction zone. Be a lot of people talking about going to church with a mask on. If you were to actually show up at church on the Granger campus, not only would you need a mask, you would need a hard hat. So uh, thank you for your patience. We are doing everything we can to accelerate the process. And we look forward to the day just a few weeks from now that we can gather together at Gospel City on the Granger campus. Thank you for your faithful giving. And you're going to just be uh, amazed at the glorious sanctuary, the worship center, facility that God's given us to worship in when you do arrive. But right now, it is a glorious mess. And so uh, let's continue to pray as uh, we prepare uh, to meet safely on this campus. And uh, as we open our Bibles this morning, uh, we're going to be learning about some of the things that need to be constructed within our own hearts as it relates to our unbelief. Today, we're going to be talking about the divine deconstruction of our excuses for unbelief. So let's just dive here into the scripture and we're going to learn about these three excuses that uh, uh, so often my own heart uses uh, for not believing uh, the things that I know deep down on the inside are true. Let's begin reading here in Luke chapter 20 in verse 27. It says, there came to him, there came to Jesus. Remember, this is the last week of Jesus' life. He's entered into Jerusalem. In just a few days, he's going to go to the cross, sacrifice himself for the sin of people like you and me. And so before he goes, he has one final argument with a group of people that are known as the Sadducees. We're going to define them in just a minute. There came to him some Sadducees who deny there is a resurrection. Now, just a little explanation about who the Sadducees were. They were the, they were the ruling religious party among the Jews. They were the richest. They were the most powerful. And yet, they had the least amount of faith. They had the most doubts. Let me tell you something about the Sadducees. They didn't believe in life after death. They denied there is a resurrection. They didn't believe in anything spiritual. They only believed in the here and now, only the natural, only the tangible. They didn't believe in angels. And so they certainly didn't believe when Jesus was teaching about heaven and hell, about the afterlife. Now let me just say to you, um, we are all natural born Sadducees. There is something in our heart that resists the fact that I will be held accountable for the decisions that I make in this life. Um, there are doubts about the afterlife. There's a little Sadducee 
in me. Preachers love to tell the story that the reason that the Sadducees were so sad, you see, is because they didn't believe in the afterlife. So it goes on and says in verse 28, they asked Jesus a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. Now, just get in your mind that there's a little afterlife bachelorette thing going on here in their mind. They're telling this little story, making up a mythical story about the afterlife that they don't believe in. And they're trying to catch Jesus um, as a trap. He says, the first brother took a wife and died without children. The second and the third took, took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died in the resurrection that they don't believe in. Therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife here on earth, verse 34, and Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Um, have you had that opportunity? You're a married person. Do you remember the wedding day? Do you remember when you were given in marriage? Uh, maybe you're a single person. You're looking forward to the day. Then you're going to marry and be given in heaven. Jesus acknowledges that that is a good thing. He says, However, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to obtain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God's being sons of the resurrection, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but he is God of the living, for all live to him." Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. They finally learned you couldn't trick Jesus. And so this very intricate story, how did we unpack all of that? Just understand this. The Sadducees' main problem is that they didn't believe in an afterlife. And that's the first point of our message here this morning. The first excuse that we use for unbelief is doubts about eternity. Sounds like this. There is no afterlife. This world is all there is. I mean, just imagine if there was no heaven. It's easy if you try. Imagine there's no hell, just above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Woo-hoo, woo-hoo, hoo. I hope you're laughing. I'm trying to make you laugh here this morning because that is really laughable. John Lennon would try to convince us there is no heaven, there is no hell, there is no afterlife, and you should just live for the moment. Let me ask you a question. How's that working out for you? How's it working out in the world since that song became one of the most popular songs and really the worldview of the prevailing age? Well, that's the worldview of the natural-born skeptic that lives inside of me. The Sadducee that lives inside of me would like to try to invent a world where I'm not going to be held accountable after I live. 
And yet that's not what Jesus teaches. As a matter of fact, throughout the unfolding story of the Scripture, the Bible teaches us everyone who has ever lived will always live somewhere. Everyone who lives will die. The Scripture teaches us that I have an appointment with death. I, I'm going to keep that appointment. Are you late for appointments? You're, you're going to be on time for that one. You have an appointment with death. Everyone who lives will always live. Everyone who lives will die. And this, everyone who dies will live again. This is what theologians call the general resurrection. Depending on your relationship with Jesus, you will either be resurrected to eternal life or you will be resurrected to eternal judgment. That's what Jesus taught in John chapter 5. It says this in verse 28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. People in tombs who can hear. That's called a resurrection. Verse 29 says, And not only will they hear, they will come out. Those who have gone uh, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now let me just be honest here for a second. Do you find that hard to believe? If you say, no, that's easy to believe, I don't think you're being intellectually honest. Because it is hard to believe in the walking dead. And yet, why do we have TV series created about zombies who were once dead and now live. Do you think that it might be something hardwired into the soul of every person that God created, that there really is life after death? If you say, I've never had a doubt that there is an afterlife, I don't think you're being intellectually honest. And if you say, I don't have this nagging curiosity about life after death. I don't think you're being intellectually honest either. And so how do we navigate our way through these things? This question was designed to, to trip Jesus up. How you answer the question, is there life after death, determines everything about how you live. Do you understand how you live? is determined by whether or not you believe you will live after you die. The, the secret to knowing how to live is knowing how long you will live. And I happen to know how long you will live. You will live forever. And that's what Jesus is teaching us to contemplate. Your state of mind in seasons of of life-threatening circumstances, with life-threatening diseases on the loose in the world, your state of mind during those times will be determined by how firmly you believe in life after death. If you have no confidence that you have eternal life in Jesus, you will cling to this life with a death grip. No pun intended. But if you have assurance of eternal life, you will receive and enjoy this life as a good gift of God. And all the things that God gives, you will hold them loosely. 
ready to exchange them for an upgrade on the other side of death. Things like marriage, sex, children, beauty, health. They're all previews of coming attractions that those of us who are in Christ will receive in the afterlife. Listen, if you think this world is, is kind of broken and fallen, you're kind of like dissatisfied with what's going on in the world, here's what you need to know. For those who have eternal life, this world is the closest thing you will ever experience to hell. But for those who do not have eternal life, this world is as close as you will ever experience to heaven. We have a choice about whether or not we will be resurrected to life or resurrected to judgment. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation for all Christian hope in the world. Remember the context. Jesus is about to die and be resurrected within a week of this story. And it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that gives Christians a transcendent hope over the brokenness and the fallenness of this world. And it's the resurrection of Jesus that forms the foundation for our own confidence in our own resurrection. Think about it. Without a rock-solid faith in eternal life, there is no hope in the midst of suffering. Without a rock-solid belief in eternal life, there's no anticipation of justice for those who have been hurt by sin and sinners in this world. Without a rock-solid faith in eternal life, there is no expectation of being reunited with loved ones who have died and gone to heaven before us. There is no reward awaiting those who live a life of obedience to God. There's no reason for confidence in anything the Bible teaches us about God. There's no foundation for right and wrong. There's no power in preaching. There's no forgiveness of sin. There's no purpose for faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, If in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied if there is no afterlife. And if there is no eternal life, there is nothing more important to you than romance. You're like, where did that come from? It came right from this story. The question that the Sadducees devised was about romance and marriage. Notice the question was, in the resurrection that they don't believe in, whose wife will she be? I mean, think about the, the possible answers to that question. Well, if she goes, remember she, she had seven different husbands and they kept dying. I don't know if she had some kind of terminal illness or something that kept infecting the husbands, but they kept dying. She kept living. She was a widow seven times over. And the question was, in heaven, whose wife will she be? Which one of the seven? I mean, you could think about it like, well, if she went to heaven, maybe she would be the wife of the best husband. If she went to hell, maybe she would be the wife of the worst husband. Or maybe she would just kind of be one-seventh the wife of all seven. But wouldn't that make her a polygamist? And you can't be a polygamist in heaven. So this is, this is a theologically deep question that she's asking here. Now, understand that God commands us to make much of marriage. The culture that we live in makes too little of marriage 
and it makes too much of romance. Now, that's not an excuse for there not being romance in your marriage. I've been convicted all week as I've been studying this. It's like, I'm not quite sure that I'm putting enough romance in my marriage. Lord, help me do that. But inside of our hearts, we want something that marriage can't quite provide here on earth. There's a lot of people that want something more than dating, but something less than marriage because marriage involves commitment. And I'm not quite sure I'm ready for the lifelong commitment of marriage. And so we end up pretending to be married and we want the benefits of marriage without all of the commitments of marriage. And listen, you should never give yourself to someone who will not give their whole life to you in a lifelong lifetime commitment of marriage. That's what the Bible tells us to do, make much of marriage. But God also commands us, don't make too much of marriage. You should make it your aspiration to get married if you're a single person. If you're a married person, you should make it your aspiration to stay married. And let me say a word to those of you who are single. I know I'm talking to so many people that the number one prayer request on your list is, Lord, I would like to be married. Lord, would you send a mate? And for whatever reason, God hasn't sent you that mate. That's a good God-given aspiration. As much as possible, you should pursue that while at the same time yielding the right to be married to the Lord. And I want to tell you right now that what is happening at this very moment, this live stream, this church, everything that we're doing would not be possible without single people I am thinking of right now that are pulling switches and playing instruments and using their God-given gifts making themselves available to the Lord to build up the bride of Christ. And so if you're a single person, use your availability to serve the bride of Christ while you are waiting on the Lord to send you your own. And I'm so grateful for people that are doing that right now. So yes, make much of marriage, but don't make too much of marriage. Um, marriage is important, but marriage is not ultimate. What Jesus is teaching us in this passage is there is no husband and no wife on the planet that can meet your deepest desires because your deepest desires can only be met in eternity. Don't look to marriage to do something God never designed it to do. Otherwise, you turn marriage into an idol. And that apparently is what the Sadducees did because they didn't have anything else to live for than the immediacy of romance in marriage. And our culture has done the same thing. Marriage is temporary. Marriage is a temporary, imperfect picture of the eternal covenant love relationship that Jesus has with His people. In marriage, in heaven, in eternity, marriage will not be necessary. Now, I know right now you're sitting here, wait, I, I, did you say my marriage is not important? Didn't say that. Marriage is important. Marriage is not ultimate. 
In the early days of my marriage, um, as Andrea and I saw this text here, I, I remember in the early days, Andrea several times saying to me, you know, if I'm not going to be married to you when we get to heaven, I'm not quite sure I want to go. She doesn't say that anymore. And the reason is because she has a more accurate view of the person she married. With all of the flaws and the imperfections, she realizes there's got to be something better than this. She's got a more accurate view of me, and she's got a more accurate view of heaven. Understand that in heaven, we will all get the covenant love relationship that we've always desired. Nobody really desires to be married. What we all desire to be is cherished. And that cherishing is God-given. And you will never find the fulfillment of that desire on this side of the grave. But for those of us who have the promise of eternal life, we have hope that one day all of our desires to be loved and cherished and nurtured and protected will be provided for us in the afterlife. The question was asked here very simply, whose wife will she be? That's the test question. How did Jesus answer that? Now, he doesn't directly give the answer, but do you know the, the answer that's implied? Whose wife will she be? Jesus answered, mine. Because Jesus is the bridegroom that is in a covenant love relationship with all those who believe. We read about it in the last few pages of our Bibles in Revelation chapter 19. It's the image of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Notice what it says. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. When do you do that? You do that on this side of the grave. That's the process of making ourselves ready for the afterlife. In verse 8, it says, It was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Scripture tells us in this passage, that all live to God. All live toward God. And so if you don't have anything to live for on the other side of the grave, here's what you will do. You'll attempt to avoid death and disease at all cost. If you don't have hope and confidence of eternal life on the other side of the grave, health care will become your idol. Your doctor and hospital and medication and Medicare will become a substitute savior so that you run to them instead of Jesus for the things that you really need. If you don't have hope on the other side of the grave, every microorganism becomes a threat. Every virus becomes a paralyzing fear and death becomes an insurmountable enemy. But for those of us that have eternal life through faith in Jesus, this life is precious, but it is not ultimate. 
Health and health care are gracious gifts from a good God. Disease is the inevitable consequence of living in a fallen world. And it shouldn't surprise us and it shouldn't paralyze us when we are infected by disease. Death is simply the defeated enemy of Christ. For those of us who have eternal life through faith in Jesus, the grave has lost its power and death has lost its sting. Let me ask you, do you have confidence that if you died at this very second on the other side of your final breath, you would be forever cherished eternally in the presence of Jesus. You say, give me some of that. How do I get that? It's through faith. You repent of sin, which is the reason we die, and we receive by faith the forgiveness of sin. And until you put your faith in Jesus, the only promise you have on the other side of the grave is judgment. And so every day is an opportunity to overcome my doubt and trust and put my faith in Jesus. There's another excuse that people make for unbelief, and it is denials about Christ's deity. And so Christ continues. This time, He's the one asking the question because they stopped asking questions. Finally, verse 41, But Jesus said to them, How can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, by the way, this is Psalm 110. You can flip back and you can see this very quote. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how can he be his son? It's a riddle. It was a riddle that David created and for Centuries, people have been asking, what it, who's going to solve this riddle? David is speaking of a Lord who will be his Lord. And one of the keys to understanding this, if you look back in your Old Testament in Psalm 110, you notice that the words of the first Lord are capitaled in all caps, L-O-R-D. And the way it's printed for us in the second time it mentions Lord, it's... Smaller letters. Every time you see the word Lord in capital letters in your Bible, it's actually indicating in the original language in Hebrew, it meant the proper covenant name for God, Yahweh. And the second time it's used, it's used as more of a title, a designation, a, a king. So the Lord, Yahweh, said to my king, sit at my right hand, I'll make your enemies your footstool. So what David is actually saying here is this. My God said to my king, my God sat my son by his side as my king. He's talking about a future great, 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 great grandson, which we now, of course, know is Jesus Christ. Jesus was trying to tell us that the proper way to interpret Psalm 110 is to understand He is David's son that has been sat at the right hand of God and all of Jesus' enemies would one day become a footstool for Him. David is saying, My son will be God's son. My son who was born after me existed before me. In other words, 
My kingdom is a preview of Christ's kingdom. King me will be dethroned by King Jesus. And that is the ultimate challenge to each one of us. Will you get off of your throne and quit pretending to be the king of your life and allow Jesus to take his rightful place on the throne of your heart? Now listen, we get so wrapped up in things that were written so long ago. Listen. Don't dismiss the kingship of Jesus today because you are distracted by the kings and the queens of this world. Kings and queens of politics, kings and queens of entertainment and sports and business and religion. And certainly, King Me is the one that rivals King Jesus' throne ultimately. One of the excuses that the human mind uses to resist the kingdom of Jesus is simply this. It all boils down to this. Would God, could God become a man like me? The simplicity of a baby born in a manger who lived in poverty, who died on a cross in suffering, could that man be the eternal God, the creator of the universe? And that's a hurdle, that's an excuse that sometimes prevents us from bowing to the rule and the reign of Christ. Could this man Jesus, this simple man Jesus, be God? Until you are willing to surrender to Him as your King, you will not inherit eternal life. Denials of Christ's deity, saying Jesus is not God, is what prevents us from coming into His kingdom. Listen, Jesus wasn't just born. Jesus was sent from eternity past into my reality. Jesus was the perfect God-man. He was like me as a man, and yet He was infinitely unlike me as God. Jesus came to us because we were powerless to come to God. Jesus came so that we could come to God. You don't come to God by being good. You come to God by believing that Jesus was infinitely good, perfectly good, and allowing His life to be my substitute in judgment before God. Listen, there's only two choices. Either you will receive Him as your King or you will be judged by Him as His enemy. That's what Jesus said. He said, I'm going to make my enemies my footstool. So the question for you today is this. Is He your King or are you His enemy? Listen, you will either willingly bow at the feet of Jesus as your king or King Jesus will make you his footstool. Do, do, you, do you want to be an Ottoman for God? One day Jesus will rule and reign as king perfectly. I don't know about you, I want to be someone who surrendered 
to Him as King. Here's the last excuse that people make, and it's a big one. Displays of hypocrisy. Some of you do not believe in Jesus because you cannot believe in Christians. And you've said it. I've heard it a thousand times. Christians are hypocrites. Well, you might be surprised that Jesus agrees with you. He tells us the story here in uh, verse 45. He says, And in the hearing of all the people, He said to His disciples, Beware, beware of the scribes. These are the most religious. These are the people that spend so much time in the Scripture. These are the people that spend so much time in the place of worship. Jesus says, You might want to beware of some of those people who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feast and who devour widows' houses for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Beware of visible pretenders. Now, Jesus calls them hypocrites. I've said this many times if you've been paying attention, if you've come to Gospel City Church, but do you know what a hypocrite is? The literal definition of the word, hypocrites are those who wear a mask. Now, there's two reasons to wear a mask. One is for protection. If you see someone wearing a mask, do not walk up to them and call them a hypocrite. They are wearing a mask for your protection. But there's a second reason to wear a mask, and that is pretense. It's exactly what Jesus said that we're to be aware of. Beware of those who mask their unrighteousness with long hours in Scripture, with a lot of blustery speech, a lot of time in the place of worship. And Jesus says, beware of them because there are a lot of people that are masking their own ungodliness with religious activity. And there are so many people that use those people as an excuse why they can't believe in Jesus. I've heard someone say it's really hard for someone to trust in Christ if they've never trusted a Christian. And there's valid reason for us to repent of our hypocrisy. The reality is this. We should beware of our tendency to let hypocrisy in the church blind us from the hypocrisy in our own hearts. You see, there's a little hypocrite that lives inside of you and lives inside of me. me. And the gospel confronts him. The gospel calls that hypocrite to repentance. If you see yourself as the self-appointed hypocrisy police, you will always find an excuse not to believe in Jesus. Or worse, you'll become an expert in masking your own hypocrisy by your own religious activity, your religious costumes and your religious flattery and your religious places and all these visible offerings. And yet behind the mask of hypocrisy, there's a void of genuine worship. Now Jesus doesn't just stop there. He makes a contrast for us. We have to go into the next chapter here for just a moment. And He points out, not only will there always be visible hypocrites, there will always be invisible 
worshipers. So don't just be, beware of visible hypocrites. Be more aware of the invisible worshipers. He goes into the next chapter and tells us about one of those. He tells us in verse 1 of chapter 21, Jesus looked up and He saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And He said to the... And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. You may think of them as the widow's mite. You've heard of these, and they look something like this. Just two very small, insignificant, seemingly worthless coins that that poor widow put into that box. Interesting how widows keep showing up in Jesus' teaching, in Jesus' story. So there's an actual widow who had lost an actual husband, not some hypothetical widow that lost seven husbands like the Sadducees illustrated earlier. But Jesus says, you want to talk about a widow? Let me show you a widow. Look right over there. If there's anyone who had an excuse not to believe, it's her. She'd been hurt. She'd lost the one who cherished her most. In this culture, if you lost your husband, you lost your income, you lost your livelihood, you lost your your protection, you lost your significance. She had every reason not to come and worship on that day. And yet she refused. Look at verse 3. He said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. For every hypocritical pretender, I can assure you, there are a hundred humble, authentic worshipers that you will never see. We need to understand the power of belief that helps us to overcome every excuse we would ever use. I don't know about you, I've used every excuse this poor widow could have used for not worshiping Jesus. I I have no one to cherish me. Nobody's going to notice my gift. i got nothing left to give. What I would give would not even make a difference. And, And besides, I'm surrounded by all these hypocrites. You ever been tempted to use those? She didn't. Instead... She surrendered all she had to worship God. Notice, it doesn't say that she gave more than any of the rest. Jesus counted up what she gave, and in His economy, what she gave was more than all of the other gifts combined because she gave out of her poverty. She gave what she actually needed to live on. It's a lesson for us. Sacrifice is not measured by what you give. Sacrifice is measured by what's left over after you give. Which means true sacrifice is rarely seen. And yet she gave us an example of someone whose faith overcame her doubts about eternity. Her faith overcame displays of hypocrisy all around her. 
And she truly believed that Jesus was the one to be worshipped. Remember, this is the last week of Jesus' life. Within just a few hours of this widow giving all she had to Jesus, Jesus would give all He had for her. Jesus sacrificed His life for every poor, lonely, hurting, single and widowed person. Jesus sacrificed His life for every imperfect husband and imperfect wife, for every husband and wife who's dissatisfied in their marriage. Jesus sacrificed His life for every hypocrite like you and me. Jesus has taught us life is everlasting. Heaven and hell are real. Jesus is God. And there are hypocrites that live on each side of us, inside of each of our hearts, that God has come to redeem through Christ. Denials about Christ's deity, doubts about eternity, displays of hypocrisy. Listen, they all make really lame excuses for rejecting Jesus as your king. And you will either willingly bow at the feet of King Jesus or you will unwillingly become a footstool for the feet of King Jesus. And we have a choice to believe as God has revealed Himself to us in the pages of Scripture through His Holy Spirit this morning. I want to challenge you right now to believe the gospel. Each one of us is a natural-born skeptic. Each one of us gets up every morning and we have to overcome the doubts. But I want to invite you right now to bow your heads and in a fresh new way, maybe even for some of you the very first time, to say, God is giving me the faith to believe that Jesus is my King. Let's bow in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for overcoming the doubts in my own heart. Thank you for the God-given curiosity and even the, the faith welling up inside of me right now to believe and trust that you came to this earth as a man like me and yet infinitely better than me. I pray for my friends that are watching. God, would you do in their hearts what you do in my heart every day, confirming the reality of what you said is true. Thank you that we don't just have to read stories from ancient truth, but you make it come alive for us every day. Grant that faith that produces repentance in our own heart. And God, I pray that you would drive out the little hypocrite that lives inside of me and that there would be a heart of authentic worship like this widow in Scripture who gave all Thank you for your sacrifice that you gave all for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.